0: Hello and welcome back to To Lead is to Learn, the podcast where we explore the dynamic world of leadership together. Whether you're a returning listener or joining us for the first time, I'm truly grateful you've chosen us as your companion upon your leadership development journey. Our mission here is simple, to empower you with the knowledge, skills and insights needed to excel in leadership. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to express my sincere thanks to each one of you Your trust in us means the world, and it's an honour to be part of your growth. Now, speaking of growth, did you know that To Leaders To Learn is brought to you by Lambda Solutions? At Lambda, we specialise in leadership development and coaching, and we're passionate about helping individuals like you become the best leaders you can be. If you're looking to take your leadership skills to the next level, or if your organisation is seeking guidance to achieve its leadership goals, I invite you to explore what we have to offer. Simply visit our website at www.thelambda.co.uk to discover more about how we can assist you directly. Thank you for being part of our community. Now, let's dive into today's episode and continue learning and growing together. In today's special episode, we will be talking to an experienced leader about their experience of leadership, challenges they have faced, and any thoughts and visions for the future?
1: Well oh, that's a good question I haven't really thought about. I also did a, a short stint at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba and within moments there was an explosion. That was really a major turning point in my life. It was uh, a troubling time for me. We take somebody who's had no leadership experience whatsoever, all of a sudden we put them in charge your job is to, in those times, to develop your leadership. And leading can be lonely. And if they're overburdened with management responsibilities, they're never going to find time to lead. You're immediately going to get backlash from the community. The founder very often needs to sort of step aside. Management doesn't create success. Leading makes folks successful.
0: Without further ado, here's Pat Diamico. Founder and CEO of About Face Development, Executive Coach and Performance Consultant. My first question that I do with everyone, which always comes on to my podcast, is that every leader has their own story of how they reached the level they're currently at. Can you tell us yours?
1: Yeah, so thanks for the question. My leadership journey really started in high school. I, I was fortunate to have some teachers and instructors that gave me opportunities to really explore uh, leadership. Of course, at the time, I thought it was just more being in charge when I was you know, 14 or 15 years old and when i was when it was coming time for me to graduate from high school the reality is and i always admit this i, I had not been an exceptional high school student so when my parents said well what are you going to do i said well i'm going to go to college and they said well that's interesting because we don't really have money to send you and your grades aren't going to get you a scholarship anywhere so i started exploring different opportunities and and ended up enlisting in the u.s army at 17 years old and as a result of that I won a scholarship or earned a scholarship, I should say, to attend uh, Valley Forge Military Academy, which was located in Pennsylvania. So that was really a major turning point in my life. Uh, Valley Forge offered me opportunities to really excel in the areas of leadership pretty significantly. My sophomore year there was a junior college because I had joined the Army, so I was in an accelerated Army commissioning program. My sophomore year, I uh, was a cadet captain and was the commander of the college. So, responsible at that point, I think, for around 180 cadets and had a full staff. So, it was during my time there that I really significantly advanced my understanding and my experience of leadership. From there, I went on after I completed my degree. I went on active duty with the army for a number of years, and uh, it was it was an interesting time. It was the early, it was the late eighties and early nineties. So I experienced deployments to Panama immediately after the invasion, the U.S. invasion of Panama, and then also served in the Middle East during Operation Desert Storm, and then also did a, a short stint at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. So it was during really that time that my not only my interest, but but I would say my passion in leadership really excelled significantly. And, and it's since that time I've really consider myself a student of leadership and, and leadership development. Um so from there, when I left the military, I went to work for Johnson and Johnson and worked in sales, but pretty quickly uh advanced to to some other positions and have had a, a really, you know, pretty robust career. And I've had an opportunity to work in a bunch of different functions, but always having responsibility for others and for different size organizations through my career.
0: When doing my research on you, actually, in preparation for this, when I went through your LinkedIn, you start your about you section with a quote I promised to bring your dad's husbands and sons back alive. And you said that. That promise that you made at the age of 23, I think you put down, is something that you should never have made. Can you tell me the leadership lessons that you learned from that? Because that must be very poignant to be right at the top.
1: Yeah, that was an extremely impactful moment for me. We were getting ready. My unit had already deployed to Panama. We had, you know, been in harm's way prior to. So I, I think I was feeling a false sense of confidence as a leader. I was 23 years old. We, you know, had already deployed. And now we were getting ready to deploy to Saudi Arabia after the invasion of Kuwait, And I stood in front, it was early in the morning, and I was standing in front of my platoon of 30 soldiers. And behind the platoon were all of their family members. So at the time, it was an all, you know an all-male unit. And so their wives, their sons, their daughters, their parents were all standing there. And I walked behind the platoon. It was early in the morning and everybody was, you know, was, was apprehensive because the unit was getting ready to deploy that morning. And I walked behind my unit and took an opportunity to address all of these folks. And to be honest, Chris, I I can't tell you what came over me at the moment other than probably my admittance that I was overconfident. And I made a statement to them that I promised to bring all of their fathers and sons home alive. And I immediately in that moment, realized I just made a promise that I, I had no way to guarantee I could keep, and it was it was uh, a troubling time for me when we deployed. We were gone for six months, and it's something that I regret, but is one of my greatest lessons, which is you know don't ever become overconfident as a leader that you can make guarantees that you can't keep. Certainly, that was a pretty significant one. And there's some irony to that because on the day, in fact, at the moment the ceasefire was announced, we had, had no casualties, no injuries within, within the unit. And we were sitting in the tent. I was sitting with a couple other officers. We were eating lunch and the radio was on, playing Armed Forces Network, and they made an announcement that a ceasefire had been reached. And in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, I've, I've been able to keep that promise and within moments, there was an explosion and the ground shook. And we raced out of the tent and realized that there had been expl- an explosion within our camp. And as we raced to where the explosion was, all I could think of was, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not going to be able to keep this promise." Unfortunately, um, there were some injuries. None of them were in my particular platoon, but uh, it, it was just, you know, when I would think back on that moment, it was pretty impactful of, oh, wow, even at that moment where I thought, I, you know, I regretted that decision and maybe I had been able, would be able to keep that promise. It was another moment of maybe I'm not going to be able to. So I've always always carried that with me.
0: During that 6-month period then when you were out there, did did that play on your mind every day then when you woke up each morning or
1: every single day? No, it was never forgotten and I think it probably at times you know, hindered my ability to maybe make good decisions, uh, because I have made that promise. So again, it's something that, that I'll never forget. And I, I never, I not only did I forget it while I was there, I have actually never forgotten it since.
0: So in terms of the military then, what, what did you learn when you went to your college, you were a commander of college? What did you learn during that time before you got deployed, which set you up for a career in the military in terms of leadership?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that's, that's interesting that it's not about or understood about being a leader in the military, and I, and I started experiencing this when I was at Valley Forge Military Academy, was you, you're really not only responsible for the work, that you put on folks, you're really responsible for their whole lives. And as a cadet, I realized that, you know, you're, you're, you're a captive audience. I mean, folks are living there, they're living at the military academy. And so it's not only about how are they doing militarily, how are they, you know, how are they doing personally? What challenges are they facing? You had to deal with behavioral issues and things like that. When I got into the military, um, into active duty in the army, it really, it advanced from the standpoint of, Again, you're responsible during the day for your soldiers, their readiness, their training. But I found myself sitting down to meet with with soldiers and their spouses about, you know, they had bounced a check at the grocery store on post. Um, they were having issues with their kids at school. I mean, everything sort of in the military goes back to the leader. So, you know, very different environment I think we're in today where, where most things are really kept very secretive and people's privacy is protected significantly. The reality is that anything that goes wrong in that soldier's life really becomes your responsibility. And so I think it gave me a real insight into motivation that, and and as an executive coach, I deal with this a lot and people are surprised. Many of the conversations, or very often when I'm having conversations with C-suite executives one-on-one, our conversations tail off to not about the business, but about their personal lives. Uh, What's going on at home that's impacting their performance? How are they feeling about things in their personal life that may be impacting them? So it gave me an understanding of you can't look at somebody's performance myopically. I'm a big believer that when somebody's performance is waning or people are having challenges, it's not simply to bring, you can't simply bring them in and say, Hey, your, your performance is down and I need you to improve it. You have to ask questions about what's going on with you that's impacting that. And sometimes it's work related. But I found over my career that many times it's not. Many times it's something that they're dealing with personally and they have to grapple with that and you have to talk about that in as much as they're comfortable sharing um, that will help you get at what's really impacting their performance.
0: So do you think that's something that's missing in terms of outside of the military in terms of leadership development? Is that missing there?
1: You know, it's an interesting question. As I I mentioned, I, I think with our focus on privacy, which I think is important, I do think that sometimes leaders are significantly more apprehensive. They certainly are more apprehensive today than than 20 or 30 years ago about asking folks, you know, is are there things going on that you want to talk about? I, I think there's almost an avoidance of that because they don't see it as their business. And certainly it's only your business if an employee is willing to share it with you. But I do think it's something that's lacking because I think you miss a lot if you're not asking folks, you know what's going on with you that's impacting this. Is there anything that you know you'd like to share? Is there anything you want to talk about confidentially that you know that would that would help me understand and maybe put me in a better position to assist you in dealing with? So I I do think it is something that's lacking, and I and I think it's a difficult thing for leaders today because we just live in a
0: different environment. Do you think the pandemic and the, the knock-on effect from the pandemic has emphasized that at all or helped it? Oh, that's
1: a good question. I haven't really thought about. Um, I think that. It's probably made it a little more apparent because as you have more folks working from home, I think there you have a greater, um, you have greater observation of maybe some of the things that may be impacting that. And I think folks may be more willing to share. Well, I'm, I'm dealing with this and that's sort of interfering. So when, when someone is in an office setting and you're seeing their work and you're dealing with them one on one, I don't think that comes up as often. But I think now that you're asking, I think with the pandemic, as folks spent more time at home, I think there's a greater willingness to sort of share the challenges. And I think the pandemic overall, from the standpoint of how it impacted individuals mentally, I think folks became a little bit more willing to sort of share the challenges that we're facing because we, we, we faced a lot of challenges during the pandemic that, that maybe we we weren't used to, um, how it was impacting us psychologically and, the, and the, the stresses that we were feeling and the pressure and some of the fears, I think so when you, when you elevate those spheres, I think folks may at times be more willing to share.
0: So going back to your military, just for one last little bit, classically, Military models have been shown as autocratic, very dictator sort of leadership models. Do you think that's fair? Did you experience that or is it, is it completely wrong and misportrayed? You know,
1: I think that the autocratic nature of the military helps the individuals understand the importance of structure and discipline. And so younger soldiers will probably speak to that as a negative. But at the same time, I think what you learn over time as you advance and you become more mature, especially for leaders, you realize and understand setting those those standards are really important for good performance. Uh, I do think that If the thought is that, well, that's just a downside of the military and it's not, doesn't, doesn't really work. I, I would, yeah, I would argue that that's probably a misperception. Uh, because people, it's important to understand. I had, and you still have today, you have soldiers that are, that are 19, 20 years old who are leaders, right? And they may be leading a team of three or, or they may be 24 and leading a squad of 10. And having those standards of discipline set really helps that organization perform. But I think that, you know, and it's funny because there was a time period where the U.S. Army went through this, an army of one, which was really to sort of promote each individual needs to be able and needs to be capable of developing decision-making on their own because you may find yourself, as very often happens, you may find yourself on your own or with a small team where you actually have to lead that team. So I think the autocratic nature, again, establishes standards and establishes discipline, which I think pay dividends back later. But the the structure of the military, in my experience and still today, I would say, you know, it works very well because it helps to develop at the very low level leaders that are responsible for small team first and then a squad and then potentially a platoon. And I think that succession is really important. I think in corporate America, sometimes we miss that. We take We take somebody who's had no leadership experience whatsoever. We take folks that have performed well. All of a sudden we put them in charge and they wake up one morning and they may be in charge of 10 people and they really are unprepared for that. So I think the military actually does a better job at doing that, not giving too much responsibility, allowing folks to make mistakes and fail and learn from that. And then ultimately, therefore, as they advance and have greater responsibility, I think they're better prepared for that often.
0: So coming out from the military then. You've worked in many sectors you listed a few earlier, um, so you've got marketing sales, operations I saw that you've worked in as well. Um, what is it about you in particular that has allowed you to thrive in so many of these different sectors after you left the military? That's a big question.
1: I think the first thing that comes to mind is I've had a really a really interesting career. I've had a lot of opportunities to work in different functions. so I started in sales, but very early. On when I was at Johnson and Johnson, somebody contacted me and said, "Hey, look, we're we're looking at centralizing. Time Johnson and Johnson had centralized recruiting for the United States in all functions except for sales. So somebody reached out to me and said, "Hey, look, I'm putting this group together. We've got a little bit of money to try this pilot for six months of centralizing recruiting for Johnson and Johnson. And and in the three sectors, there was consumer, pharmaceutical, and then medical device. And we've got enough money for six months. Let's give it a shot. Let's see if it works. And if it works. Then you know it'll move forward, and so that's one example of where I had opportunity to work in a completely new function, really in a completely new department that we built from scratch. Um, I did that. I've worked in marketing. I've done a lot of sales operations time and commercial operations time, and a lot of different functions. I think the benefit to the benefit that I would speak to is that I had leaders. One in particular early on in my career when I took a job as as a director of sales operations came to me and said, look, I need you, you know what your job is. We've, we've laid that out and you understand what your responsibilities are. But he said to me, anything else you want to be involved in or get exposure to, let me know. As long as you're getting your job done, I'm willing to do that. And I took over advantage of that. I, there were certain, like, I was not a finance, I had no finance background. So there were some things I went to and said, look, there's this finance project going on. I'd love to be part of this. I don't really understand this. So I'd like to be part of that and, and different things in in manufacturing and operations. Um, I volunteered for two teams while I was at Johnson and Johnson that were acquisition teams. So where we bought an external organization and integrated them. And so it was my leaders, the leaders that I had and their willingness to allow me to sort of grow and expand and raise my hand and say, I want to be involved in this because I don't know a lot about it. It's. It's led to what I often like to say, I, I consider myself a master of a few things, but I have experience in most areas. So I can generally speak intelligently in most meetings with executives about most functions because I've had at least enough experience to understand the concept and understand what the goals are of those, of those different functions. So I, I think that's really been one of the things that, that has made my career pretty interesting it's not even a clear path that j and j when you started sales typically they say you have a couple options you have the the strict sales track you have the back and forth sales to marketing track or you can also add in there some time and training and development those were sort of the way things were done um and i really didn't view that as a path i wanted to take so i really varied my career i looked at opportunities that were outside my function or were an extension of my function that i could get greater experience in
0: there's almost being a bit of a maverick in a very structured this is how you're supposed to do but you were very maverick and going across everywhere
1: yeah one of the most interesting things about about my career is i think over half the roles that i've had have been new roles newly created that was another thing i was really uh, interested in was anytime there was a discussion about we are looking at creating a department to do this i would say i'm i'm up for that and so i I've had a lot of experience and developed sort of reputation of being able to start a new department, hire everybody that's there, um, and then move that forward. And, you know, what I've also found about that, when you're starting a new department, uh, it's exciting and new. And what I found is that you do reach a point where it's time for you to move on. The founder very often needs to sort of step aside once it's created and and have somebody look at it differently, because you become very, very attached to it, like you would a child. It's, It's yours. It's you know, and in, in, in my first couple of departments, it was tough to let go of, right? I would kind of follow what's going on there. And I don't know if that's right. And I had to, over time, be able to step back and say, that's somebody else's vision. And that vision needed to change. It's very different when you're starting something new, but then after it becomes established, you need a new set of eyes to say, okay, here's the direction it needs to go.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned time to move on. Yeah. What would you say are the key, like, indicators that now is the time to move on
1: anytime first of all you find yourself making the comment that this is always the way we've done it it's probably time for me to move on i think that's a comment we hear too much and i think needs to not be in our vernacular at all but i think once it's become successful i think you really need to stop and, and that success has been seen over a year or four or five or six quarters you probably need to step back and go okay is it time for me to move on and, and it's interesting because I coach a lot of leaders, and I love when I hear somebody say to me, I, I just know it's time for me to move on. A, a friend of mine called me last week, very successful. His organization actually re, uh, realigned, and he is out of a role. And it was interesting because the first thing he said, I said, how you know how you doing? How are you feeling? He said, honestly, I, it, it's really time for me to probably move on. I'm not, you know, I'm disappointed. But it's really probably time for for this to be done differently, and that that takes a lot, and, and that takes a lot of ability to self reflect and be willing to put your ego aside and say, "Hey, look, I've I've done well here. I've accomplished what I went out to accomplish." But it's probably time for somebody new to come in. So I, I think that's one of the things that um, that is a key. Others might be when you find your employees are becoming, in your view, stagnant. You're looking, going, I, I, "These folks aren't developing at the pace that." my previous employees in the group were is that because of me is it because i am tied to the way things have always been done and i'm not encouraging folks to really look at things differently i think those are those are some indicators that that need to be considered
0: i guess yeah you you mentioned about being attached to your team being attached to that you thing you've built i guess there's also the other side of things of the fear of jumping where do i then go to next
1: well we all fear that right I, i mean the reality is you know, I, I I hear we talk so much about change and change management, but but at, at a baseline people need to understand that as human beings, one of our most basic needs is safety and security and, and and therefore change is difficult. That does not make us lazy or necessarily resistant to change. It makes us afraid of change. So you really need to be able to evaluate and and I think one of the biggest things about being a leader is your ability to really look in the mirror. Your ability to look and say, What am I what am I good at? What are my strengths? Uh, but also, what are my areas of development? And I've always been one that believes that you need to be willing to take opportunities that are going to develop those areas that you are maybe not not bad in, but maybe deficient, right? Because I hear a lot of folks say, and I think it is important. I'm a big, big believer in strength finders and and the concept of you know play to your strengths, absolutely. But to have a long successful and uh, satisfying career, I think you also need to be willing to look and say, here's some things I'm not good at, and I really should look for a role that helps expand this and and really builds your resume, right? I mean, um, as I said, I've had a really varied career. I'm very proud of that. It hasn't been one track. And so I think that's really important.
0: Are you ready to supercharge your leadership skills? Get your hands on our free ebook, Mastering Leadership Excellence, a brief guide for modern leaders. This ebook is your ultimate companion to your leadership journey. It's packed with 15 chapters covering common modern leadership challenges. But that's not all. At Lander Solutions, we believe in continuous learning. So we're going the extra mile. After signing up to receive this free ebook every week for 15 weeks, you'll receive an additional chapter right in your inbox. That makes a total of 30 chapters completely free to support your leadership development and growth. At Lambda Solutions, it's our mission to empower leaders like you, your organisations, and your teams. This ebook is just one way that we're here to support you. Ready to dive in? Visit our website now at www.thelambda.co.uk to access your free ebook, kickstart your journey to leadership excellence today. At Lambda Solutions, we're here to help you lead, learn, and succeed. I mean, you've hinted a little bit throughout the discussion about your passion for developing leaders. Yeah. From my research, I've you know seen that that's something you definitely pursue. So, how do you go about this? What's your approach for developing leaders?
1: The first thing I say to any Group of potential leaders, that I think is really critical is they first need to understand if they get the most satisfaction out of being on stage and being recognized, then then being a leader may be challenged for them because as a leader, you need to get greater satisfaction out of watching your people succeed. and And to be fair, as a leader, your success is fully predicated on the success of your team. I mean, you know i have seen a number of poor leaders in my career who were very self-focused and, and very egotistical and that you can be successful for a while but but in my opinion not long term right because at the end of the day your success is defined and determined by are your are your people successful so that's the first thing that i look at is do these individuals understand that they're not they're not going to be the ones getting the accolades now. They they have to really be proud of getting accolades for the team. Not that there's not accolades when you're a leader, certainly. Um, but that's, first and foremost, the most important thing really to determine. The other thing in developing leaders is the understanding that leadership development is a journey, and it should be treated as such, both by individuals and organizations. And it is one of the things that I think is lacking the most in corporate organizations is okay well we need leadership development um we know this so we're going to schedule this program it's going to be two days we bring somebody in they're going to do their thing and and we've checked the box and, and checking the box um i don't think can be done on most things but for me you know no more so than than with leadership you you cannot check a box it is a lifelong journey i still consider myself every day a student of leadership you know, my ability to look and see what are the things that I'm not doing well. And sometimes those are things that they used to work well and they don't anymore. So, so leadership as a journey is really important. So the key to being one of the keys to being a good leader and identifying, you know, prospective leaders is, are they learners? You know, are they somebody who really focuses on learning and development of themselves uh, because that's a requirement if you're really going to be a successful leader. Because that journey, frankly, never ends.
0: I love that you said leaders are learners. I mean, that's my podcast. That's
1: right. That is yeah. And I meant to comment on that, but but as we started talking, after, yeah, I mean, it is it is so critical. There there's not a moment that I'm not in the middle of two or three different books on leadership or biographies or or, or things just to sort of you know because storytelling is such an important part of learning, uh, and I think we learned so much from from. From engaging and hearing other stories. So uh, it's absolutely critical.
0: Having a look at your um your business about face development, I saw that. It's focused around providing long-term approaches, you've mentioned, and you've mentioned continuous leadership development as well in there. I love that description when I found that, because you've got the two reasons. One is long-term and then continuous. You hit the nail on the head, you know, so many companies, just two days, three days, let's do a week over there. And you've just got to keep going because the moment you stop, you're left behind. Can you explain to me why it was that you chose that it's going to be long-term, it's going to be continuous? How did you come up with that?
1: Yeah, uh, actually... That's a pretty simple question because what I find with potential clients is they're either in one camp or the other. If somebody reaches out and says, "Hey, we're looking to do a half a day at our national meeting, and here are the topics we want to do," and if I ascertain that that's all they're really interested in, as much as I hate saying no to business, I will say no. Uh, you know, we are not we are not an event organization. We are interested in in first understanding what the challenges are um, and then building a long term developmental plan that ensures that those events don't just sit as events right what are the things over time that need developed what is the plan we can put in place how do we keep folks engaged and, and keep them engaged in, a, in in what is reasonable one of the things I, i'll mention here that's that's pretty interesting is in the military in in a 20 year career people people don't really don't really appreciate this In a 20-year career in the military as as a leader, you will probably spend somewhere between two and a half to three years of those 20 years solely developing as a leader. And when I say solely, what I mean by that is you will attend programs from three months to sometimes as long as nine or 10 months without having another job. Your job is to, in those times, to develop your leadership. And so over 20 years, two or two and a half to three years of that, you're going to spend developing your leadership. When I transitioned to the corporate sector or the private sector, that was one of the things that I was absolutely blown away by is that appreciating the fact that when folks are going to development programs or involved in development programs, they're doing all that development while they have another job, while they have a full-time job and responsibilities. And I, I see it in... Programs that I run in person, I see it when we're, you know, when I'm doing remote work. There are things that, you know, they have to deal with. So it's really important to understand that in an organization, you have to have a continuous development program, but that program has to fit with what is realistic. So I think organizations are sometimes surprised. One of the first questions I ask when I'm being engaged is, I will say, what's the realistic amount of time that your leaders and spend developing as a leader during the year. And and here's what I find very often the answer I get is something I have to look at them and go, okay, that, that would be a panacea. And that's not going to happen based on my experience, you know, over the last 30 years. You know, some folks may say, well, we want folks to, if we want to carve out two days of every month uh, for folks to attend a program. Or I say, well, that's, that's aspirational, but that's probably not realistic, right? Um, at least that's my experience. You know, so we'll talk about, let's talk about what is realistic. Yeah, and that might be, One two day program in person every quarter. But in between, we're doing remote development or we're doing sessions where they're sharing with each other that are much, much shorter. So that's really important to understand that when you're talking about a continuous development program, it has to be realistic. The moment you put something out there that is too much or is unrealistic, you're immediately going to get backlash from the community, leadership community, and you're really, you're stopping it before you're starting.
0: Your tagline at About Face as well is a change in attitude, behavior, and direction. Why did you choose those three then?
1: Well, I actually chose those three because it's part of the definition of, of About Face. And the story of my coming to that, uh, the name for the organization that you don't mind my sharing, uh, is fairly interesting. In, uh, in 1989, I was getting ready to go on active duty. Uh, after completing my degree and having been commissioned. And right around that time, there was a book published called About Face. So this book About Face was written by a gentleman by the name of David Hackworth. And at the time, David was considered the most decorated soldier in in the United States. And David had served in Korea. He had served in Vietnam. He was highly decorated, wounded a number of times. And I read the book and it was incredibly, incredibly impactful from a leadership standpoint. Now, some of, uh, some of Hack's approaches, as, as he's known, his last name was Hackworth, some of his approaches, um, you would read today and be like, I'm not sure we would do that today. And I wouldn't argue that point, but it moved me so much that I actually sent a letter to, uh, to him and just let him know how impacted I was by the book. And, uh, subsequently he ended up writing me back and it, it began a friendship that, he and I had for a number of years until he passed away. And he's been somewhat of a controversial figure. He was the highest ranking U.S. Army officer that uh, went public about his uh, criticisms about the U.S. approach to the Vietnam War, which you would look at, most would look at today and say he was completely right. But at the time, it was very unpopular. Uh, so when I, I was looking to name my company really in, um, in respect to him, uh, that's where I got that. So back to your original question those three terms are, are, are the definition of about face, but to your question about changing attitudes, uh, you know, leadership has so much to do with a mindset and leading can be lonely. Um, there's no question about that. And, And I, I think I experienced that in the story we talked about earlier when I made that promise, I found that I think making that promise made me more lonely. I, I felt it's so necessary to put on the right face, which a lot of times in those circumstances, especially in the military, when you're in arm's way, you really have to be that rock for your subordinates into your organization, and so that that can be a lonely place. Um, you know, your peers, which are a small group, and very often you're separated from them a good portion mm-hmm. of the time, uh, really can can create some some dilemmas for you. So a lot of it it's about attitude and mindset
0: in terms of the direction of behavior then that's that's just the definition of about face. Do you have a a link to your leadership development in terms of changing behavior?
1: So changing in behavior really is is an individual journey, right? You need to understand where are folks at in their careers. And and since I deal with leaders at all levels, i I spend a lot of time uh, as a facilitator training potential leaders. I spend even more time training current leaders at, at, at the first and second line. And then I spend a fair amount of time with senior leaders who've been around a long a lot time. And I think we all develop habits and folks need to be willing to be introspective and look at what do they need to change. Well, the interesting thing is those are very different roles for me, right? When I am, when I am addressing and training potential leaders or new leaders, It's very much about setting a standard and helping them understand what are the concepts that are important to understand as a leader, where are you spending your time, where should you be spending your time, those sorts of things. When I'm dealing with senior leaders, I'm not really driving the conversation, right? I'm a big believer in, as an executive coach, my goal is to coach. And the definition for me of that is about what your challenge is what are your options what are the options that you're considering and then talk about what are the you know pros and the cons of those um, anytime i move out of that role as a coach when i'm executive coaching i tend to ask permission so you know uh, you know next to coaching would be advising and advising is different in that maybe somebody's facing a challenge and i'm asking them okay what are your options and i'm hearing the options and i'm thinking to myself I'm still looking for the best one or a better one. And I'll say, you know, do you mind if I, you know, put on my advising hat? And once I have permission, I'll say, you know, have you considered this? And I try not to feed too much because really when you're developing as a leader, no matter what level you're at, you're really trying to develop that critical thinking. You're trying to develop that individual's ability to sort of think outside the box because we tend to think, okay, well, I've done it this way in the past. Okay. If that's worked let's evaluate, ask yourself, will that work here? What are the factors that are different in the current scenario? And so therefore, will that solution work here? So um, I'm very careful about not moving out of being a coach unless I absolutely have to. And, and there, are, there are circumstances where I have to go all the way and be directed, right? Which is one of the other roles where I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to a leader who maybe has not had experience in a certain area. And that may be surprising I had that situation last year. I was coaching two different people in the same role in different organizations. Both of them had the same number of years of experience, and both of them, because of the time of the year it was in, they were both in a certain cycle of business that they had the same task to accomplish. So one of them sort of said, "Well, you know, I've had this, and I've done this a number of times before, and here's what I'm thinking about." And we sort of bounced it around. The other person during the coaching session. I assumed they wrongly. I assumed that they had had plenty of experience in this, and so we reached a point where I, I had to stop it. I said, "You know, I'm, I'm sensing a tremendous amount of apprehension about this task. Can you tell me why that is?" And and they just blurted out, I, "I've never done this before." And I was floored. I was like, thinking to myself, "You've been in you've been in this industry for a long time. You've been at a high level. How did you you know avoid this?" And it wasn't a question of that the individual avoided it. It just you know it was a task that had not been placed in that area that individual had been in so at that point sort of need some insight to say okay here's here are some options of what i've seen done in the past here are some things to think about now take that away evaluate them let's talk you know, let's talk in our next discussion about which of those do you think will work but you know one of the things with coaching is you really have to draw it out it's it's i guess you would say it's like therapy right it's you're not there to answer all the questions for them you're there to help them find the answer as best they can
0: back to new leaders then in terms of new leaders coming in how would you go about explaining to them the difference between the role of a leader and the role of a manager
1: oh i make it very simple um managers manage the day-to-day tasks that are associated with their job leaders really inspire and motivate individuals to do what they need to do. So managers, I think there's a bunch of quotes on this. Managers manage things and leaders lead people. However you want to look at that, I, I think that's, you know, that, that's pretty clear, right? Um, and, and both are critical. And very often I, I use the term manager slash leader, especially when I'm writing, right? I will say management slash leadership development because they, they are two distinct things that are inexplicably, you know, uh, you know, tethered to each other. From a manager standpoint, you absolutely need to understand what are the processes within your organization that you need to deal with and you need to accomplish. That is critical. Um, Those are a lot easier, generally speaking, right? There's usually expertise within the organization that can sit down in a room or one-on-one and can train you or there's online and and those things can be learned. Becoming experienced and to develop as a leader, it's a little more esoteric. It requires a lot more, you know, a greater thought greater introspection, greater evaluation of looking at at situations and saying, okay, what is the best way to approach this? And, and how do I really motivate folks to succeed? So uh, again, both are critical, but very different. One of the things that organizations, and I found this, I have found this more and more with the advent and advancement of technology without question, which has been funny because you know, the advent of technology was supposed to make us all more efficient. And I think what it did was it just made us capable of accomplishing more in the time frame. But a lot of the challenges that I see in many organizations is there's far too much time spending managing, and not leaving enough time to lead. And so, very often when I'm doing a diagnostic, which is which is the way I approach every new client organization, I perform a diagnostic, and, and that helps me understand first and foremost where are they spending their time. And if they're overburdened with management responsibilities, they're never gonna find time to lead because those management responsibilities are they're they're hard and fast, right? They're okay, hey, this needs to be done, here's the reports that need to be turned in, here are the responsibilities you have, all these things need to be accomplished. But very often what I hear is from the managers themselves is we don't have time to lead. And and a lot of times that's absolutely true. And the organization, you know, my goal is to point out to the organization. This is why they don't have time to lead. And we need to have a a sincere and honest conversation about removing some of these management responsibilities so that they actually can lead because management doesn't create success. Leading, leading makes folks successful.
0: In terms of organizations then, in terms of their energy, where do you think they put most of their energy in terms of their internal training? Would it be on the managing side of things or the leadership side of things?
1: Well, first off, let's, let's go before we even get there. Organizations do a, you know, the organizations that I work with, um, and then there are organizations that are Fortune 500 or Fortune 100. They do a tremendous job of training folks on the requirements of their job. Without question, they make sure folks know how to do their job. Never a challenge there. So too often that's where it ends. Right? We don't have time to, or we don't have money to invest. What's really interesting, Chris, is. There are so many surveys of senior executives that when they're asked what needs to happen in your organization, that leadership training is almost always at the top of the list. But then you ask those same folks, what are you really lacking at? Leadership development, top of the list. It it falls off because people believe you can't measure it. And, and my my first answer to that is if you are losing. If you are turning over and lose, you are an undesirable loss, you are losing employees that you do not want to lose, then that is reason enough there to invest in leadership and management. I mean, there are a ton of estimates out there. In, in the industries that I work in, we estimate the cost of losing an employee is also the cost of a bad hire. Um, is probably around a quarter of a million dollars. And that just scratches the surface, right? There's the opportunity cost. There's the retraining cost. There's all of that. There's the lost revenue during the transition. But when I ask an organization, one of the first questions I'll ask is, what does your turnover look like? And what percentage of that is undesirable turnover? How many people are you losing that you want to keep? And there's a direct correlation to the lack of leadership development and the the lack of leadership competency in the organization to undesirable turnover. So once they do that, um, Once you address that, back to your original question, organizations will focus on the management tasks that need to be done. And I, to an extent, I just consider that, I don't even consider, I don't consider that personally lead, Leader leadership training. That is not, that is not leadership development. That is the individual understanding what's required in the role, be trained to do that in the role. And that, that goes all the way up to the CEO or the president of the organization, or the general manager, right? You have to know what are the tasks that you have to perform. But when it comes to leadership, strict leadership development, um, it's it's severely lacking and too often falls by the wayside.
0: That's interesting. That resonates massively.
1: What's your experience from your standpoint? What, do you, what have you observed?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's exactly the same. When I run my sessions for leadership development, I, I show a graph. On the X is your time spent in the organization. On the Y is how much like your job is what you originally set out to do coming into the job. And when you come in, it's 100 percent. Yeah, you spend all of your time on that. And then you go through and it's like, as you get promoted, what you're good at, you get promoted because you're good at that. And it's like, well, you're doing less and less of that and more of this bit. How much time do you get spent, you know, being trained to deal with other people? And I see it all the way through in everything that I do. There are so many people in leadership positions who in that leadership position, they, they have that anxiety of like, I don't want to let go of this thing that I'm good at. So therefore they don't empower the people below them. And it's like, well, you're not helping them out. So they don't know how to do it.
1: That raises an interesting, and I see this sometimes in uh, when I'm working with organizations at the higher levels, right? As, as folks advance, my, what I encourage them to do is you know, let go of those things that you're really good at, right? Because number one, it help, will help develop somebody else. You're already good at it. Focus on those areas, especially when folks move from, let's say, the VP level to the C-suite level. You see that a lot, right? You see folks who have been ahead of, Let's say they're in sales or they're in manufacturing, right? And that's what they know. And then they move to a C-level position where they have their, their old function and other functions. And some folks struggle so much to let go of that. And, and I think folks look at it and say, well, they, they don't want to let go of that control. Sometimes that's it. I think more often it's they're afraid, right? Well, I, I, I know the most about this area, so I'm going to focus there. But then the problem is those other areas that they're now leading, And they have less experience and they really are the areas that they really, really need to develop. So I I think that's really important. The other thing, too, that there was an interview I had watched a a month or so ago where somebody had gathered some data on looking and asking for feedback. And it was interesting because the data showed that the higher an individual goes uh, in their career, the less they're asking for feedback. This is a pet peeve of mine. And I startle some people with some of the approaches that I take to what they need to do to get feedback, how often they should be seeking feedback, because I think it's really, really lacking.
0: In some respects as well, we tie feedback together and then letting go of things they're good at. I guess they're worried about getting the feedback on the stuff they're not so good at because they know they're going to get feedback and something they're going to have to change because of it and fear of change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and as leaders, I mean, I, you know, I, I will always say I, I know what I do well. I, and I'll, and you know, more than happy to share that. But I also am very willing to share what I don't do well and make that known because it's an area of development, something, you know, those are the things that I need to be developing.
0: So in terms of leadership development, then we're going into a business. Let's pretend we're going into a business. First thing you've done your diagnostics, you've mentioned about the diagnostics when you're then going to put in place some training, are there any key fundamental pillars that will always be incorporated into your training that you provide? So yes, the first
1: thing is, you know, the diagnostic will reveal to me what the challenges really are. I find that taking a stab at it, I would say 50% of the time, what the organization thinks are the gaps are not actually the gaps, um, that there are, there are others. And so in, in, I live in a world that I'm fortunate because as a consultant, for whatever reason it is, and I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, and we were laughing about it, somebody, one of my clients, is that employees are much more willing to share with me as an external consultant. And I think with any consultant, employees are more willing to share what's really going on than they will with their leaders. And it's somewhat understandable, right? I mean, one of the things that's really important for me as a consultant is I create an environment where people, there, there's a high level of trust and confidentiality. So when I'm doing a diagnostic, I may be interviewing 20 people in the organization one-on-one and I let folks know at the beginning of that. I'm not asking anybody to write anything to me. I'm actually taking my own notes. So even the, you know, the, the way they approach the dialogue would not be able to be, you know, connected back to them, but I really take it and then and then analyze it and and, and give it back as a collective. So once I've done that, um, when you ask about the pillars, I think that the fundamentals are important in anything in anything anyone does, right? Fundamentals are always important. Uh, I, I train a lot of salespeople. And one of the things that folks will say to me as well, I, I think we need an advanced selling program. I'm like, there's no such thing as advanced selling. There's an advancement of the basics. There's getting better at the basics, but you you need to really focus on the basics. So I actually spent about six months, um, actually more, probably around nine. I spent nine months when I left industry and went into consulting uh, because I was I was on a project looking at all of the research that was available in on leadership development programs. It was fascinating because there's actually been about 50 years at this point of of research on leadership development programs. You have the industry side, all that data. You have the academic side. You have the hybrid of those where you have organizations that worked with academic institutions. And there's even a ton of meta-analyses on this data. So like about eight months on that, what the output of that was, was a list of the 20, based on the research and the data, the 20 most critical leadership and management competencies. And from that list is what we build really our initial and even our long-term development is ensuring that folks Have a baseline and understand these are the critical management leadership competencies. Some of those competencies might surprise folks. And I would say, you know, what we, what we look at is not all of those require the same amount of time, effort or, or focus. And that 20 is meeting management. Now I would tell you that I would never go into an organization and recommend we spend two days on meeting management, but there are some critical you know, keys to running a successful meeting as a leader. Therefore, we have some remote or online tools that can provide that to folks, right? Because meetings is not something you do every single day, right? When you're planning a meeting for your team. So we provide them resources that they can access when those times come, because sometimes there's gaps in those. Maybe it's every three months, maybe it's once a year. They can go and they can, you know, they can, they can partake of, of those micro learnings and that learning whereas other competencies coaching is one that you know i would not revert to online or or asynchronous you know sort of remote learning you know that's got to be done more in person ideally and then that skill and competency needs to be continuously developed and there needs to be a continuous process of of best practice sharing because one of the other things that i that i always say to folks is, as a facilitator is that my goal, and I, I, I make that a very clear distinction. I'm a facilitator. I'm not a, I'm not a lecturer. I'm not a teacher. I'm not an instructor. I'm a facilitator. My goal is to bring a group together, discuss concepts with them, and then discuss how do those concepts work, ideally, within that organization. But the other thing is, best practice sharing is something that is absolutely critical. I can know a lot about the organization I'm working with, but I'm never going to know as much as those individuals in the organization. So I always am looking to put in place follow-up reinforcement sessions that involve those individuals sharing what's working and really even more important, sharing what's not, right? We learn more from our failures than our successes. That's just how human beings are. They're more impactful. So I do have a lot of focus on those reinforcement sessions where individuals get a chance to say, look, I... We talked about this during the program. Maybe it's three months later. We're on a Zoom call like this. And somebody says, hey, I want to share a story with me of something that didn't go so well. And I'm always interested first. And I always encourage groups. The first thing we do is let's share positives with that person, right? Let's recognize the good work they did. And that's, then let's look for upgrades. What are some things that they could have done differently? Or, or I might ask the person who's telling the story, you know, would you do it differently like I would as a coach? You know, if you had to go back, if you could go back and do it again, What might you do differently? And in that, it gets that person thinking, but also gets the group thinking about, okay, well, maybe this is being missed. So I want to encourage folks to share so that that development really becomes a community affair.
0: In terms of being the facilitator, getting them to reflect, if there was a a leader listening to this podcast right now and you wanted to kind of give them some reflection questions to reflect on their practice, what three questions would you pick right now?
1: Oh, that's a good question. The first one is, and there's some context to this where are you spending your time and the reason i share that is because to simplify the process of leading on this question you know we tend to put people in in three buckets right a b and c players a, a players are your top performers b players are your ones that you know they're they're average performers but they probably have some potential to do better and the c players are the folks that that are not really pulling their weight or they're really challenged and What's interesting about the data is, first of all, most leaders will find themselves stratified where maybe 20% are A players, 60% are B players, and 20% are C players. The data would suggest that a significant amount of time is spent with A players, and that's driven by the A players, right? It's not the leader reaching out to them. It's those folks reaching out either because they want you to know what they're doing well or they're looking for resources or they're looking for support, right? Whenever you have a new program available, the A players are the ones trying to lock it all up. Well, we got 10 opportunities here and you've got one person on our team is like, well, I need all that. I, 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 and they'll make a good argument, right? Um, so A player time comes from, from the A players reaching out to you. But the research also shows that significant amount of time is spent with the C players. And that, that time with the C players is not driven by the C players. Frankly, they don't want to hear from you. That's driven by the leader. Um, and data would suggest that too much time is being spent with the C players, because at the end of the day, the reality is where's your time need to be spent? It needs to be spent with your B players because your B players have the potential to become an A player. So I would ask people, look at where they're spending their time. And this is, this is not a difficult exercise. If You just explain that concept to people and ask them, now think about it and tell me where you think you're spending. They're going to say, well, my A's bug me all the time and I'm spending time with them and my C's I'm chasing all the time. And uh, and I'm a big believer in C players. And when I say a C player, I don't mean a new employee who's just getting up to speed. I mean, somebody who's been fully trained, been around, they're not performing. I'm a big believer in avoiding firing people. The key is get somebody to understand and appreciate they're not at the right place for them today. And how do you help them? find a better place for them whether that's inside your organization or outside. So that's one question where are you spending your time? Second would be how much time are you spending coaching your people? Are you observing them and giving them feedback? Not behind a screen. Are you actually spending time with them understanding what are they doing? If they're remote, are you spending adequate time talking about share with me a story of a challenge you faced last week that you know that's been eating at you. What happened? Tell me about what you did. And then coaching them, asking them the question of, okay, if it's something that's done it over with, ask them the question of what would you do differently next time? Or if, if that situation occurred again, what other options would you would you consider? So that'd be number two. And the number three one, Chris, would be, are you asking for feedback? Um and I'm really passionate in this area. Uh and when I speak to groups, I usually give this example. I'll I'll ask, When do you typically ask for feedback? And 90% of the time, it's, well, when I'm giving them their performance review, I will then ask them, what can I do differently? Now, think about that a second. And I say to folks, you've given them no time to prepare, saying to them, hey, what can I do better? Even if in that moment, they absolutely know what they want to say to you, I can almost guarantee you they don't know how to put it in a way that they're comfortable with. So I always tell folks, and I, used to, and I do this religiously with my own employees, when when we are getting ready to have a discussion related to their performance, I will tell them in advance, hey, as part of that discussion, I would like you to come prepared to share with me at least two, ideally three, things that I can do better. I want to make sure you have some time to think about that. And then I will say to the employee, "And I, if you don't come with a list of two or three things, I'm going to let you know now we're going to sit there and stare at each other until you come up with them. So please don't put yourself in that situation, but you being able to share what I could do better for you is just as important. So you need to be doing that on a regular basis. I think a lot of leaders, when I say, do you ask people for feedback? They're like, oh, absolutely. But when I start asking them, tell me the circumstances under which you do it, I start to discover things that that aren't optimal for them to actually to get feedback that's gonna help them develop.
0: In terms of the feedback side of things, um a lot of things have gone online now, gone digitally and people send out like surveys like a leader might send out a survey of t- you know to their employees. Do you think that's as useful as sitting there like you said giving them a week to think about it and then having a discussion?
1: Well, you could argue that if they're doing a survey they have time, but this goes to a to a greater point. I talked earlier about the diagnostics we do now i give an, I give my clients I do give them two options, but I'm pretty clear about which one I prefer. So I'll say to the organization, look, we can do this one or two ways. We can send out a survey, which gives us a greater data set, no question, right? We can survey a hundred folks in the organization or one-on-one interviews with 20 folks. And I let them know you know, the pros and cons, but, but really I'm, I'm trying to push them in one direction. I firmly believe that one-on-one discussions reveal so much more. Because data is data, you know, that sort of survey data, you know, just sends it back to you without context. If I'm doing a one-on-one interview, I can sort of ask follow-up questions if somebody brings something up. And I can also, it's very common for me, I'll conduct four or five interviews and I'll start to hear some themes. I can now dig into those with the remaining folks I'm going to interview. And and you don't have that ability to do that in a survey because, you know, I'm not a big fan of multi-level surveys, right? I don't like, hey, we're going to send this out. We're going to find out what the, what appear to be some of the biggest challenges. And then we're going to send out a a subsequent, you know, survey that sort of delves into those areas. Um, I firmly believe one on one is far better. The other thing too is, you know, when you get a survey, let's be honest, we, we tend to blow through those things, right? Um, we probably don't give it as much thought, but, but I want that one on one interaction. Um, I'm really big on that. I want to, I want to, I do them all over Zoom. If I can't do them in person, I want to actually see them. And see their expressions, see their reactions. Sometimes I'll ask a question and somebody will cringe and I'll be like, okay, I saw your reaction. Let's talk about why that's a hot button for you. Right. So I think that's, I just think it's far more valuable.
0: talked about coaching and i firmly believe coaching is definitely something we need to drive forward and have a bigger impact in leadership than anything else in terms of coaching and mentoring i think there's a lot of a lot of blurry lines where people don't really know when does it become mentoring when does it become coaching for you what's the difference
1: They are mutually exclusive. And I let folks know, especially at the C-suite level, I let folks know when, with every person I potentially am going to one-on-one executive coach, we do an initial call just to make sure we're both comfortable with each other, that I feel that I actually am in a position to potentially help this person develop and that they feel comfortable with me. I let them know during that, that you know this engagement is about coaching and not mentoring. And I encourage all of my, uh, I encourage everyone, but you know, I'm just speaking of the executives that I coach, I encourage them to have a mentor. I will share with them, mentor, what you're looking for is you're looking for someone that's within your industry or closer to your role that has the experience that you go to when in your function that maybe. You know has more experience so for instance i i coach a very recently promoted uh chief human resources officer incredibly incredible she's incredibly talented but she's new to the role so when we talk about when we talk when i was talking with her about finding a mentor what she's really looking for is is a senior chief human resources officer that she can go to for things that i can't help her with right when she's going for functional questions um there's some insight there. Now, the other thing that I think is really important is, and I always tell folks this, uh, a mentor should not be within your own organization. I think that's absolutely key because number one, you, you know the same people. And secondly, that individual is going to look at things too much through the same lens, organizational lens that you're looking at it through. I want somebody from the outside who's going to tell me, well, that's interesting that you all do it that way because I've been with these two organizations and this is the approach that we took. And so it gives that individual an opportunity to go look and say, okay, maybe maybe those options would be better. Maybe they need to explore those. Maybe challenging to get people to change their attitudes about it. But, uh, but mentoring is really more, in my opinion, more of a functional or role-specific um, guide to really bounce things off of. Whereas a coach is really going to delve into what's motivating you how are you feeling about this? Those sorts of things. So that's a great question. And I I agree with you 100%. I think too often those lines are blurred. Um, I make sure that folks don't... So the two key things for me is I make sure that folks don't see me as a mentor. Certainly, I, I mentor folks, right? That's a different role. But I, I make sure people understand I'm their coach. And I also really, really encourage folks to find mentors outside the organization. And mentors finding a mentor can be difficult. So I, as as an executive coach, we're talking about finding a mentor. We talk about that process. And what's really critical is, you know, folks that are tremendous mentors are overwhelmed with people asking them. And I'll often say to folks, look, you're going to have to go to your second tier list, because while this person would be a tremendous mentor, they don't really have the time to commit to you. They're mentoring three or four other folks. And a lot of of times that's what we deal with. Is somebody will come back and say, geez, you know, we talked about identifying, I reached out to this person and they said, you know, they'd love to, but they're already mentoring two or three people. And I said, well, that's the challenge with really good mentors. It's folks that are willing to give of themselves like that. Um, They're in high demand, you know, so, um, so, you know, keep them on, you know, let them know, hey, if somebody drops off, I want to stay in touch. Um, But a lot of times, really good mentors, in, in my experience, will tell folks, hey, look, I'd love to do this, but the reality is I, I don't have the time to commit for what you're looking for.
0: There's been a massive growth in coaching. Lots of people are coming out, executive coaches. You've got leadership coaches. You've got lots of, I guess, the next big boom is going to be this mentors—people who have you know time and you know can charge for mentorship as well as like coaches do.
1: Yeah, I would hate to see that um, because I think—and I'm not a big fan of this word, but I'm going to use it here. Surprisingly, I, I think there's there's you know. Uh, Mentorship needs to be a little bit more organic. It it needs to be something that the mentor is willing to do. And I think a financial connection to that, I think unfortunately would would would, would deteriorate, you know, the benefit of it. Um, you know, the folks out there willing to mentor to give of themselves. I think that's the most important thing about that mentor. The minute it becomes a financial gain, I think really challenges it. But but also to your point, mentoring has become big. I mean, for the first time um, at a you know at a at a learning conference, probably two years ago, I, I saw the first sort of application uh, for mentoring and tracking mentorship. Uh, you know, starting to become available, and so mentoring is really important, and uh, and finding mentors is is critical. To, I think critical to success, and I encourage folks to try to find more than one because a lot of times you can't always reach. The primary one that you hope to, but I, I encourage folks to find more than one.
0: I've got a final question. My final parting question, uh, which I like to ask the guests, is: What are the most important lessons or a piece of advice, maybe, that you've learned through your journey so far that you would pass on to a young leader just starting out? So I, I
1: love this question because uh, there. I, I've been touting this for years. When I was seventeen years old, and I. I arrived at Valley Forge Military Academy. My my first primary instructor was this was a gentleman by the name of Sergeant Major George Dede. I still consider him one of the greatest coaches and mentors. I I the really greatest mentors specifically I had in my in my entire life. And in that first year with him as an instructor, he had been you know he was, he was a, uh, a Vietnam vet of three tours. He was he was a tremendous leader of soldiers. And he shared this with me when I was seventeen. He said. I'll give you three things to remember and keep these with you the rest of your career. And I, I have, I've written an article on this. i mentioned it in many discussions I've had. Those three lessons were the following. The first one was don't mess with people's pay. Now, of course, he did use the word mess, but let's keep it clean, right? It was the old army then. He said, don't mess with people's pay. If they have a pay problem, fix it yesterday. And I always love repeating that, meaning fix it yesterday, meaning, look, unless you're unless you're working for charity and, and you are not trying to make money, the reality is people work for compensation. So if somebody has a pay problem, it will overwhelm them. It'll be all they think about seeming so to fix it immediately. That was number one. Number two was don't mess with people's off time. Let them be off when they're on PTO. Let them be off. Don't be that person who's like, well, you know, I know you're going away, but how can I reach you? Right. Let that person have their time off. Everybody needs that. So that was the second thing. The third one is the greatest guiding principle that I've kept with me as a leader ever since he told me that. It was, gosh, it was 35, 36 years ago now. And it was, if your people truly believe you're looking out for their best interests, they will perform for you and you will be successful as a leader. And I've carried that with me. And it's been the yardstick by which I've measured all leaders that I observe either worked for or just observed. Do they genuinely really care about the human beings in their charge or, or do they not? And so I, I think, and, I, and I've seen it play out for me personally. I've asked folks to do some extraordinary things as a leader. And I believe the primary reason, not the only reason, but the primary reason they were willing to do those things is because they really knew I was, I cared and I was looking out for their best interests. Um, I think it's the greatest lesson I've ever learned as a leader.
0: No, that, that's really powerful. I, I love that they build up, build up towards that last one. That, that just hits home. As a sort of side note, what's really interesting is um, your about face development business is very close to a business I'm setting up right now. And as you were talking through your process, I went, wow, this is almost like exactly what I want to do here. The idea like a one-size-fits-all sort of leadership development package just doesn't work. It has to be contextual.
1: Sometimes I ask that question I mentioned earlier, you know, let's talk about what's the realistic amount of time. People are thrown off by that. And even some people in my field are like, never start with, you know, you shouldn't start with that. It doesn't matter. I'm like, no, no, actually to me, I think it matters more than anything because I've seen too many programs fail in my career that that was, it was an unrealistic expectation on the employees. Right? They're not going to commit this kind of time. You know, sure, it's great that you think they should, but they're not going to. So you need to understand what is the organization's realistic appetite. And sometimes I adjust that. I mean, I will work with organizations and we'll get a year in and I'll go back and go, hey, look, I know this doesn't seem like we're asking a lot, but it but but it's playing out that way. So we either need to have a conversation about what's preventing them from participating in this being a focus, or do we need to ratchet it back or is it a combination of both right
0: well that was that was a brilliant conversation i got to about question eight then we just went off piece and we just kept on talking it was great
1: well chris thank you thank first of all thank you for your consideration and thank for you thank you for for having me i really enjoyed it you you do a really nice job of interviewing and and
0: i want to let you know that until next time remember to lead requires us continuously